1: Controversy continues to swirl around the CMS proposed changes to the Medicare shared savings program. Some providers are threatening to leave the accountable care organizations if CMS moves to finalize its proposal. Standing by to report this developing story is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Also, on today's Monitor Monday, Healthcare Attorney David Glazer is standing by with another example of risky business. Rack Monitor Investigator Reporter and New York Attorney Ed Roach reports on how pharmacy benefit managers are keeping drug prices high. It's an exclusive report. Targeted, Proven, and educate audits, continue to generate confusion and concern. Returning to report this developing story is health attorney Andrew Walkler. And Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckler returns with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener quiz. But well, we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is
0: sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr.
2: Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. Last week, I was honored to be able to speak at the annual meeting of the National Association of Healthcare Revenue Integrity. Since this was a group of hospital revenue staff, I made my case for proper status determinations in total knee arthroplasty to ensure that hospitals were collecting all the compliant revenue to which they were entitled. At the beginning of my talk, I polled the audience And found that about 10% were still admitting all Medicare patients as inpatient, 20% were performing all as outpatients, 50% were trying their best to guide the doctors to the right status, and 20% of the audience was not sure what their hospital did. I also discussed the CMS proposal to allow cardiac catheterization procedures at ambulatory surgery centers starting in 2019. Did you know that CMS paid over $3 billion for cardiac caths in 2016? Imagine if hospitals lost even a fraction of that revenue to physician-owned surgery centers. And if elective caths go to the surgery centers, so will elective pacemakers and defibrillators and, of course, all the commercial insurance patients needing any of those services. That could cause significant financial pain. There were many fascinating sessions at the conference, but the one that really opened my eyes was presented by Jugna Shah and John Settlemeyer discussing new technologies. As they explained, when new technologies hit our hospitals, there may be a three-year new technology add-on payment that can help us pay for the service, but that payment over co- only covers 50% of the cost, so it often falls upon the outlier payment system to properly compensate hospitals. And the outlier payment system is based on the total reported cost of the care provided. And that total cost is calculated by taking the total reported charges and applying the hospital's charge to cost ratio. Now I know that sounds convoluted and that's because it is, but here's the kicker. When a hospital adds a new technology to their charge master, even though there is a new technology add on payment, they have to price it so that the charge to cost ratio gets applied properly. I'm sure many of you have heard of CAR-T therapy for leukemia. The hospital has to pay the company that processes the blood $375,000 for each treatment. The add-on payment from Medicare is maxed at $186,500. So in order for a hospital to get the proper add-on and outlier payment, they must post the cost of this treatment on their charge master and on their claim at about $1.4 million. But not only does that affect proper pricing of that payment, but each year CMS collects every claim for these new technology services and looks at what hospitals charged in order to assign it to a proper DRG or establish a new DRG if appropriate. So if they don't get it right, they're gonna be literally paying for many years to come. Now the kicker to all this is that not only will the patient get a statement with a $1.4 million charge, but CMS is now requiring all hospitals to post their charge masters on the internet for all to see, and this will certainly raise some eyebrows. It sure is complicated out there on the revenue side. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President
1: of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now for the latest hot topics in the Modern Money Listener Quiz is Modern Money Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy.
3: Good morning, Chuck. And I'm going to continue my series from last week on Targeted, Probe, and Educate. I got a lot of individual uh, feedback from our therapy listeners last week wanting to know more about therapy. So to kind of recap, Novitas, NGS, Neridian... CGS was added two weeks ago to TPE for therapy outpatient, and last week, WPS added this for outpatient therapy last week. Um, I'll be extensively reviewing therapy-targeted probe and educate based on my experience in the uh, pre-, intra-, and post-TPE process with my clients and what I've learned um, at my annual RAC Monitor Therapy Update webcast on, on December 12th. So please make a note to listen to that if that's of interest for you. For this week, I want to review some additional updates uh, from our broadcast last week. So Novitas has published Round 1 and Round 2 results from the End-Stage Renal Disease Targeted Probe and Educate. And for their findings on the Round 1 results... Novitas looked at 106 probes, 64 probes were closed with a minor error, 17 with a moderate error, 17 with a major error, and eight closed with an insufficient sample size. The reason for denials are the physician's order for hemodialysis was missing, the order for dialysis was not signed by the physician, the physician's order was not signed timely, and the treatment flow sheets for the date of service were missing so from that of the 106 probes 34 providers moved to stage two end stage I mean targeted probe and educate round two of end stage renal disease and 34 probes were completed and I'm taking that to mean it was the 17 people with moderate and major errors each so that's a total of 34 probes were completed in round two Twenty-one were closed with a minor air classification, four with a moderate, three with a major, and then they had six with an insufficient sample size. Now, coming back to the reasons for denial, the reasons for denial considerably narrowed down. They were either incomplete or missing treatment records, so somebody didn't send everything in, or they were missing the signed order for treatment. So this is kind of giving you a signal of what's going on. Beginning in November, the people that flunked round two TPE on end-stage renal disease with Novitas will be moving to round three, and we'll continue to provide some updates on that. I also wanted to report on a DME Joint Task Force presentation last week on targeted probe and educate. So all four of the DME max participated, which is basically CGS has two max, Meridian has two. And they did a brief presentation, and as usually the case with the DME Joint Task Force, the folks that do the presentations are very good about having open mics. So providers get to ask a lot of questions, and it's been my experience that the providers come very well prepared. Of concern for this were people, um, providers indicating that their documentation was good. They had no problem with their documentation. However, they were required to participate in TPE by adding physician's office records, potentially hospital records or nursing home records, any other records from other healthcare professionals to their TPE, and that's where they were falling up short. In fact, a lot of the Q&A was how fair is it to them when the physician doesn't lead up to their end of the stuff on DMA. So very interesting to note that and keep Keep that in mind. I know Drew's got another report coming up later in our program on TPE. And now, Emily, I wanna bring up the quiz, as Chuck calls it, our survey for this morning, courtesy of David Glazer, who's gonna tie it into his risky business segment. Okay, a patient presents with an insurance card, and you realize it's really a friend's insurance card. You must, number one, do nothing. It would be a breach of confidentiality to notify police. Number two, you call the police. A witness to a crime must report it. And number three, neither of the above is correct. We'll get the results of the poll later in the broadcast, but David is going to give us his correct answer in his upcoming segment. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Nancy, very much. I'm Monitor Money Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley Associates, and Associates. As Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Quiz later in the broadcast. And come here with about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone. We're going to hear from David Glazer, Ed Roach, Andrew Wackler, and Nicole Emanuel. This is Monday, October the 22nd. You're listening to Auditor Monday. Stand by.
0: Are you ready to sit for AHEMA's industry-regarded certified coding specialist physician-based exam? Well, don't sweat it. AHEMA offers resources to prepare you to sit with confidence, to achieve your goals, and to grow in your career. The CCSP exam prep pairs on-demand webinars covering key domains, with an interactive learning schedule, making it easy to prepare on your schedule. Gain access to additional study tips and a Q&A with a coding expert during the upcoming virtual learning session on December 19th. AHIMA encourages self-information professionals to never stop learning or expanding their skills, and they're dedicated to offering you continuous support. Get
1: all your exam prep materials at ahimastore.org. Thanks, Mark Anthony. We're back at a program note. There's a very important webcast that's coming your way tomorrow. It's about DRG downgrading. Now, DRG downgrading is a tactic used by payers to reduce hospital payments by reducing DRGs and inappropriately denying relevant diagnostic codes. It's coming your way tomorrow, 1.30 p.m. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business
4: segment is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. Good morning, Chuck. So for listeners who are planning on attending the HCCA Fraud and Enforcement Conference next month, I hope you'll come up and say hi at my session, which will focus on physician compensation issues. We'll focus on why people mistakenly believe that they've overly compensated physicians, when in fact, all is just fine. Now let's take a look at the options for the quiz. So there's something appealing about the first choice, because there's a duty of confidentiality that applies to uh, health care. For example, uh, I once had a psychiatric hospital have to decide whether it could call the police about a patient who had recently committed a double murder before seeking care at the facility. We concluded that the facility could not let the police know that the patient was there unless and until the patient was about to leave. In that case, the hospital's duty to warn would trump the duty of confidentiality. This story illustrates how the duty of confidentiality isn't absolute. It's part of a balancing test. Now, the second choice is more clearly incorrect. Generally speaking, a witness to a crime does not have a duty to report it. If you're on the street and you notice a mugging, I think the right thing to do is to help the victim and call the police, but there's no legal duty to do so. But it looks like uh, people were choosing answer three, which is what I would do, and here's why. When a patient presents with a false insurance card, that patient is drawing you in to their own fraud. If the patient obtains the insurance coverage to which he or she is not entitled, you're a beneficiary of the improper action. So it's quite clear to me you can't simply accept the insurance card knowing it's false. There's a risk you'd become a co-defendant. That doesn't mean, however, that you automatically could or should call the police. There's an alternative available which is to refuse to use the insurance card and tell the patient they're breaking the law. You can do that without notifying law enforcement. Now, is it permissible to contact law enforcement? The answer to that will vary state to state. And the fact that there's an option available that avoids contacting the police and that doesn't involve uh, turning in the patient causes me to recommend against involving law enforcement. Some states will authorize you to contact law enforcement if there's a crime in progress or a crime to be committed in the future. But the law in this area isn't crystal clear. This much is certain. Before contacting law enforcement, you want to be absolutely certain you're correct about the misuse of the card. While there is generally a qualified privilege that protects communications with law enforcement, the fact that you have a duty to preserve the confidentiality of encounters with a patient means that a mistake here could be a very expensive one. The bottom line is that personally, I would be inclined to tell the patient without contacting law enforcement, but if you prefer to contact law enforcement, there's a possibility your state permits it. So Chuck, we're at a sunspot minimum, so there probably is not a little black spot on the sun today. And if you see a skeleton choking on a crust of bread, you might want to call the police. But generally, when working with patients, you want to be more like that heroic nurse at the University of Utah who actually stood up to the police when they were looking for blood from a patient, and generally avoid interacting with the police when it relates to a patient. If you do call the police, I recommend you first work with legal counsel to avoid feeling the king of pain. I have
0: before, the port.
5: i always hoping that you'll end this way But it's my destiny to so be the key of
1: pain. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Frederick and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. The Trump administration is trying to rein in prescription drug prices, but pharmacy managers are using IT to keep drug prices high. Rackmodern investigative reporter and New York attorney Ed Roach, has this exclusive report. Good morning, Ed.
6: Today we continue exploring how IT facilitates astronomical health care costs. I'm inspired by recent hospitalization in Spain, where a hospital visit costs less than 10% of what we pay in the United States. Another difference Healthcare in Spain is less reliant on IT. Does cyber drive high medical cost? Let's look at pharmacy benefit management. PBMs work for health plans as third-party administrators of prescription drugs. They are giant information processing structures tying together pharmacies, drug manufacturers, self-insured companies, mail order houses, and government programs. PBMs handle prescriptions for more than 226 million Americans. The advertised purpose of the PBM is to negotiate lower drug costs, but a CMS study found these negotiated prices up to 83% higher than prices at community pharmacies. PBMs have gained control over the formularies of their client health plans. A formulary is a list of prescription drugs covered by an insurance plan, if a drug is not listed in the formulary, the insurance company won't pay for it. Four examples. Number one, spreads. Patient submits prescription. PBM pays the pharmacy $10 but then invoices $90 to the insurance company plus a $2 administrative fee. ka Profit of $82. Number two, repackaging and repricing. PBM sets up a mail-order pharmacy. The health plan is offered elimination of the $2 administrative fee. The patient is offered reduced or eliminated copay. The PBM repackages the drug and sets a new price. Example, Lipitor prescription priced at $460, minus a 15% discount, plus the $2 administrative fee, leaving a cost of $393 to the health plan. Repackaging by the PBM. New price, $700 minus a 20% discount plus zero administrative fee, cost to health plan, $560. Result, the mail order cost the health plan $167 more than a local pharmacy. Number three, rebates. Brand name drug threatened by a generic. Brand name manufacturers offer a $60 rebate to the PBM. The PBM excludes generic from the formulary. PBM pays the pharmacy $150 for the brand name drug, then sends an invoice to the insurance provider for $140, giving them credit for $10 out of the rebate received, but it pockets the $50 part of the rebate. The health plan pays out $140 instead of $20 for the generic. ka Number four, mail order mistakes. Even after drugs are no longer needed, the PBM keeps shipping them out. These mistakes lead to gigantic waste. Mm -hmm. The role of cyber in drug pricing is one of an enabler. IT reduces price transparency. Healthcare providers, patients, pharmacies, and doctors see only what they are enabled to see. The common pattern is cost shifting to the insurance provider in some IT in the PBM industry has morphed into a tool for inflating the price of health care. Next time, we will consider how IT has helped Medicare become a computerized juggernaut, the world's high-cost provider. See you then.
1: Thanks, Ed, very much. That was Rack Modern Investigator Reporter and New York Attorney Ed Roach. Ed is the Director of Scientific Intelligence for Barracuda New York, LLC. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, Target Approve and Educate Reviews by Medicare Administrative Contractors continue to generate confusion
5: and concern. Here now with an update on TPE health healthcare attorney, Andrew Walkler. Thanks, Chuck. We spoke last week about it, and I want to provide some more information and maybe talk a little bit more about strategic approaches. I think when you um, receive a letter from a TPE audit where in the past it was just a regular audit and you provide records and you wait and see, I think it's a call to uh, immediate action to go into a a compliance mode to see if you can utilize this process to stay out of the crosshairs of the contractor or uh, CMS. Already, if they're focusing on you, they perceive you as uh, an outlier. So, uh, for example, with hospices, they may look at a PEPPER report where the hospice exceeds 80%. Uh, You should look at your uh, contractor, if we have time, I'll provide some information, but your contractor's website to look at what issues they are focusing on uh, for TPE. And the denial rate that you have to meet may differ by the type of service that is being audited and the MAC that is uh, doing the audited auditing so for example, uh we have one home health agency um, and they're looking for um, denial rates um under uh, over under twenty five percent would get you uh out of their system and there's a lot of action on home health agencies and hospices home health agencies they have new guidelines for conditions of participation uh, January thirteenth uh of this year so um, once you uh, you should also know that in terms of the one on one education from communications we have had with uh, a particular uh, contractor, and this actually is in the area of uh, pharmacy, uh, they indicated that you don't even have to wait till the end of round one to begin some one on one communication. You can have them. Along the way, and if you can develop a relationship with the reviewers where you can kind of address any of the perceived defects, and maybe you can lower your uh, uh, number uh, uh, along the way. If you are provided with multiple pins, then you can also receive multiple TPEs. And so I, I'm suggesting, really, as audits change, and we've seen them from the Traditional MAC to the UPIC to the RAC, our strategic approaches change. Uh, We want to focus on documentation. We want to get very active with compliance, maybe put in our own pre review. If you have round one and you know you're going, you know, and you get a number that does not, um, that you know you're going to round two then you should uh, be looking at that uh, 45-day window and start reviewing your claims to make sure they go into round two as accurate and as good as documentation as uh, possible. Um, That's kind of the key for strategic approach. And we're just seeing from different contractors, different uh, areas, Um, We do have CGS is looking at critical care visits, emergency room visits, hospital visits, lab, and others. Palmetto is looking at major joint uh, replacement, Wisconsin Physician Services, inpatient uh, rehab, uh, facilities billing emergency rooms. So there's something for everybody here. Uh, With that, Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Drew, very much. That
1: was healthcare Attorney Andrew Walkler. Drew is a managing partner at Walkler & Association Royal Oaks, Michigan. Some providers are threatening to leave accountable care organizations if CMS moves forward to implement sweeping changes to the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Reporting this developing story is healthcare Care Attorney Nicole Emanuel.
7: Thank you, Chuck, and thanks for having me. On October 16, 2018, the comment period closed regarding CMS's Medicare Shared Savings Program, or the MSSP proposed rule. The MSSP has been a controversial program since its inception. The chief concern is that the financial disincentives will decrease the number of accountable care organizations, or ACOs. The proposed rule for MSSP intensifies the financial disincentives, causing even more concern about the number of ACOs. What is the Medicare Shared Savings Program? It's a voluntary program that is supposed to encourage groups of doctors, hospitals, and other healthcare providers to come together as ACOs to give coordinated high-quality care to their Medicare patients. Providers can choose among three distinctive tracks, one, two, or three, depending on the amount of risk the providers want to bear. The purpose in the MSSP is to diversify risk of both loss and gain between the government and the ACOs. For example, Track 1 ACOs do not assume downside risk or shared losses if they do not lower growth in Medicare expenditures. CMS created this program in hopes that doctors, hospitals, and other healthcare providers would want to participate in the program For the chance to make more money rather than remaining in the traditional Medicare relationship. The program turned out to be more successful than anticipated, with the majority of the ACOs opting to become track one, or the least risky model. CMS's new proposed rule, however, increases the risk placed on the ACOs. Needless to say, providers aren't happy and many ACOs in the program warn they'll drop out if CMS finalizes its proposal as is. What are some of these proposed changes? First, ACOs currently have six years to shift to a risk-bearing model from a shared savings-only model, the Track 1. The proposed rule would give existing ACOs one year and new ACOs two years to transfer to a risk-bearing model. This one change could cause mass exodus from the MSS program as many providers are by nature risk adverse. Another change, the proposed rule, will require CMS and the ACOs to morph into using five-year agreement periods. I'm on the fence regarding this change. This change could strengthen ACOs' incentives to reduce spending by breaking the link between ACO's performance in the first two years of each agreement period and their future benchmarks. However, this modification could also worsen incentives during those first two years of each agreement period. I'd love to hear other people's opinions. Another change is that there's going to be a slash in shared savings rates. The proposed rule purports to slash shared savings rates for upside risk models from 50% to as low as 25%. The glide path concludes with a maximum of a 50% sharing rate based on quality performance and a maximum level of risk assumption. Other proposed changes include a bifurcated system for high and low revenue ACOs, which functionally penalizes certain ACOs for the size of their patient population and volume of services. A differential system for experienced versus inexperienced ACOs will also be implemented. There will also be additional disincentives to lower spendings. Stay tuned for whether this proposed rule becomes finalized. Will there be too much risk too quickly placed on the ACOs? Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner of the Potomac Law Group. Now's the time for our Monitor Monday listener
4: quiz. David,
1: join the conversation, if you will, please.
4: Looking at the poll results, it looks like our audience did quite well. Almost everyone picked the neither above is correct, although we did have a chunk that were willing to call the police to report the crime, about 16%. And I would just encourage people, before you call the cops, make sure you check with your legal counsel. And I don't think we have time for questions today, Chuck, so I'll turn it back to you.
1: Thanks a very much. And we don't have time to answer any questions during this live broadcast, but we'll make every effort to answer those questions after the broadcast. And as David said, that is going to be a wrap for us. We thank you very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, Nicole, Emmanuel, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Ed Roach, and Andrew Walkler. We thank you very much for starting off your week with us this morning. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday, and Rack Monitor, thank you again for being with us today, and have a great week, everybody.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.